Hello and welcome to Private Practice Podcast. This is episode five of the Book of Flow and this chapter is officially called The Body in Flow. I'm James Hall in Spain. Hello, welcome. I'm Daniel Brown in the Private Practice Studios in London. Before we get on to anything, the last chapter we looked at a number of things. We looked at the, the graph, we looked at mushrooms, we looked at Nazis, we looked at travel. We jumped around various topics giving a kind of potted guide to achieving flow in various situations, many of them unlikely, such as taking hallucinogenic drugs and being a Nazi. James, James, stop, stop, stop. Guess what I've just found? Oh, jolly good. Well, it it means one of two things, really. The memory card was left... Oh, tell the listeners, James, about the uh, Ferrari, uh, the, the 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 chaos, the 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 shit that I have bestowed upon you for the last two weeks. Okay, well, I wasn't going to give the listener an exhaustive <laughs> account of everything that has happened oh, in the last do. two weeks. But ruin fine, me, James. Fine. Let's ruin do some me. housekeeping. So first, of, <laughs> firstly, I said I'd mention the colour of the pen that I used, and this time it's a kind of cyan, which is a. It's a, it's a four-colour biro. I'm using the blue, but it's not a normal royal blue biro colour. It's a paler one. Secondly, this is the second time that we've recorded this episode. We did it once before, although <laughs> it was kind of chaotic the last time we did it. And Dan managed to appropriately lose the chaotic episode on a memory card that looks like it was stuffed into a game of Scrabble or a dictionary or something. And he's literally just found it now because he has used that same box or book to prop up his microphone and it hasn't come off the shelf since we last recorded. That's why he couldn't find it. He's spent two weeks of his life searching for this memory card. It's been quite... It's been stressful, James. I was worried that I'd lost confidential information. I was worried that there might even be photos on the memory card. No, it was just exactly where I left it when we finished the recording two weeks ago. <laughs> I want to start with some chaos. So, Dan, can you do an impression of someone scatty trying to leave the house and they forget their keys and their scarf and they don't like their shoes and all that? Can you just do an impression of someone with a chaotic mind? Rather than an impression, I'll just describe myself this morning. OK, got to get up. Right, no, I'm going to put that on. No, I won't have that on, actually. Oh, no, I'll probably just have my joggers on. I'll be much more comfortable with my joggers on. Downstairs, I go to the front door. Oh, no, I can't do that. I may as well put the kettle on first. I'm going to put the kettle on. No, if I leave the kettle on, though, what I'll put, oh, God, I'm just going to pop next door. I'll put, oh, hello there, how are you doing? OK, no, I better go back in because I haven't actually got what I need to pop next door. I'll come back, in I come. Oh, hang on a second, that's a bit odd. Didn't I put the kettle on? The kettle's not on. Oh my god, why am I wearing these joggers? I'm just going to pop upstairs again. Hang on a second. Oh my god, 20 minutes has gone past and I haven't even got next door. They're going to be furious with me. Hang on a second. Take a breather. Let's just put the kettle on. If I put the kettle on, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that is an example of the mind in chaos with thoughts just popping in out of control, which is the state of being for everyone. And I wanted. Apart from you, James. Oh, yes, apart from me because I'm divine. That's not true at all. I have as chaotic a mind as anyone and it's only been in the last year that I've even started to understand what it's like to tame the mind and to actually feel like 
I can be calm and think about things. And I think uh, a number of times we've tried to we've tried to talk about the changes that I've tried to make in the last year, and a lot of it comes down to recognizing thoughts. And it's not a case of filtering out thoughts so that your mind is some kind of holy, silent monastery. It's more to recognize that you have those thoughts and to not let them just ricochet around like a pinball machine in your chaotic mind, whereby everything you're thinking at, at, at any moment is just the random thought that just presented itself a, a nanosecond ago. Uh, so the idea is you can have the thoughts, the chaos is there, but not allowing it to guide your actions. Yes. So, for example, this morning, you made me wait half an hour, which <laughs> made me angry. But that doesn't mean that I'm now angry and it doesn't mean that my mind is now chaotic and I'm incapable of giving a considered recording of this podcast because I simply recognised I've had to wait half an hour for Dan. That is something I would rather not do. It makes me initially feel angry, but it doesn't matter that I have that angry thought because anything that is out of my control that inconveniences me will make me feel to some extent a, a negative... It will give me a negative thought. There's nothing I can do to stop that. It's not like... Um, finding flow or meditating or Buddhism or mindfulness or any of these practices as some way of just getting rid of all negativity in the world and having some kind of pure core in your body that is simply harmonious and divine and from now on your life will be peaceful and wonderful and you've got rid of all that negative energy and you can just levitate through life with your legs crossed like a floating guru in serenity and peace into eternity until death when you become a beautiful butterfly reincarnated in the next life because you have perfected serenity and beauty and peace. What the book and various other practices are trying to do is to concentrate the attention of the thoughts coming into mind at any given time. And that is what, that's basically the focus of the rest of this book and the rest of these episodes, starting now. <laughs> and hello, welcome to episode five of Flow, The Body in Flow, take two. So coming up in this episode, um, I'm going to be talking about walking because I've spent the last year doing a lot of walking. Dan is going to be talking about his sex life, all the details, all the salacious gossip, um, because there's a whole chunk <laughs> of this chapter called Sex as Flow. And what, so the copy, that, the copy of the book that I have is Dan's original copy that he read a number of years ago. And up until this point, centimetres of the book have gone past with nothing highlighted and then suddenly you turn from page 99 to page 100 and on page 100 it says sex as flow and you get into the salacious, sexy, uh, titillating bit of the book full of words like sexual act, painful, revolting, frightening, pleasurable, enjoyable, ecstatic, and all of these things are furiously highlighted in bright yellow from the time that Dan read this, getting his rocks off, 
Um, wait, what? Wait, 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 wait. Now that's salacious gossip. Let me show. Let Dan, you can have a look. I'm holding it up for the screen so Dan can see all his copious. I mean, basically, there's more of James, the page let, that's let, yellow let me, highlighted than is not yellow highlighted. Let me hold up my copy now and see what I've highlighted as a slightly more mature version of myself. Slightly less yellow. Yeah, so slightly less. Um, but also, it was. It was that those parts were interesting to me. So, yes, we're going to get on to Sexer's Flow a little bit later on. So, carry on, James. And then for something... For something a little bit different... <laughs> for something a little bit different this week, I went for a walk in order to talk about <laughs> one of the sections of this chapter, which is to do with sight and paying attention to what you're looking at. And therefore, I went specifically to a very hideous place to talk about looking at things. So I was actually quite pleased because I managed to do, for the first time in my life, I managed to do one take, no notes. I'd done a lot of mental preparation, as in I had planned what I wanted to say carefully in my mind. And then I went to the place where I wanted to record, which is a particularly hideous place. And I recorded half an hour on um, paying attention to what you're looking at. And um, listening back to it, I was quite pleased with it. And you'll be able to hear what I was pleased with in this episode later on. Amazing. So um, you, were, you spent the morning being pleased with yourself. Absolutely. I do think, though, that from the anger that you um, directed in a very calm way towards me before we started this podcast, I'm very impressed with how you are able to just get on with things in such a cheerful, bright way. And I think perhaps you really have clicked into some of the more uh, salient features of mind control. I'm very impressed because I'm still pretty pissed off with you about how, how you spoke to me. But at the same time, I'm so proud of you. It's really interesting. And I'm just trying to focus now and get into the flow of this podcast. But I've got those strong feelings as well. So I'm going to see if I can be as good as you are today, James. That's the reaction from someone I've been waiting for my entire life. You know what? You've impressed me. Well, I do think that a lot of the problems I've had in the past when I've been unhappy about situations have just been the chaos of not being able to make sense of anything. And then in the past year, I've managed to make sense of things more, but not really understood what the difference was. And this book, in its relentless repetition and <laughs> autistic detail and <laughs> very ordered uh, rationale of the way the ideas are presented in specific chapters, in specific orders and so on, makes it very easy for someone like me to finally understand the idea. This chapter is basically about the five senses as well as the whole body together, which is the sexy bit. I guess you could say, why don't we step into James's on-site um, on section and then some kind of dream sequence music? Uh, no, because that's the, um, that's the looking section, not the walking section. Oh, OK, OK, all right then. So why don't we look into... Oh, God, anyway, where, where are we going with this, James? We're going... We're go no, you were right. You, you got your metaphor right, but you got the section of the show wrong. So we're going to... Oh, we're going to step yes. into... OK, so do you want to try that again? We're going to step into talking about walking. <laughs> right, OK. Yes. Um, I think you just did it perfectly. <laughs> it's just, you just get better and better moment by moment. There's, there's no stopping you, James. So... At the beginning of this year, when I was 
in when I was spending a month living in a, a little building in someone's garden in Montpellier. That was when I started listening to very long podcasts, like, for example, the Joe Rogan podcast, where they're often about three hours long. And mm-hmm. I found myself thinking I, I wanted to listen to the conversation, but I never had three hours because I used to listen to podcasts of about half an hour to an hour and I would have them on when I was cooking or when I came out the shower and I was just sort of like putting the washing on and tidying up and stuff like that and I would listen to something for half an hour to an hour and then with these three-hour podcasts I didn't I wasn't all that I had plenty of time in my day at the time and I I wasn't all that keen on splitting up a three-hour podcast into kind of like six lots of half an hour whilst I'm faffing about in the kitchen and so on. And so one day I just decided to go for a long walk for three hours and listen to the podcast. And previously, I never used to do that much walking. I knew I liked it. I remember in in London every summer, there would always be one time when I would walk home from work. The last one I did was, for example, from Soho to uh, Belsize Park. It took me about an hour and a half. And I thoroughly enjoyed the walk, but I can distinctly remember getting home and thinking, that took me an hour and a half. I'm only going to do that once this year because that's, I don't have that much free time. And I've just taken an hour and a half to get home from work when it would only take me half an hour on the Northern Line. And so that was it. That was the one time that I did it on a nice day. And I enjoyed it, but my immediate reaction was, what a waste of time. Or that's my free time, I won't get back. So I've never had a particularly positive approach to the idea of spending time walking. So it was only when I had, I, I had plenty of time. So it wasn't really, it wasn't like a, it didn't feel like a tragic, what's the word for, when you waste things and you don't care about it. Frivolous? I don't yes, know. that's the word. That's exactly the word. It was, didn't feel like a frivolous waste of time to spend three hours just going for a walk when I neither needed to get from A to B, nor did I have other things that I pressingly needed to do. And I was really surprised at what a massive enhancement that made to my life at the time. The, the, the combination of the, just the, the obvious physical benefits of movement, because a lot of my life is very stationary, um, <laughs> pens, books, <laughs> notepads. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. So, sorry, James. On with it. On with it. Um, a lot of my life was always very stationary. Working as a graphic designer, sitting in front of a computer, making a podcast and editing it, sitting in front of a computer, watching TV, reading, eating. Uh, I'd basically get up to do the cooking because that would be standing, and then the rest of the time would be not upright, not in full giraffe position. So the, the, the physical benefits of movement. So to literally just move does the basic, um, it does the science of whatever it is, releasing endorphins and making you aware of your body in movement and the sensations that you, the stimulation that you get from all your uh, nerve sensors in your body, converting various inputs into electronic signals that are sent to your brain and therefore stimulate your brain to recognize inputs from the exterior world as opposed to just mellowing into uh, being fused to the seat. So there's that. And then on top Uh of that, I found myself enjoying the fact that I was walking for the purpose of spending three hours 
going somewhere round and back again. I was deliberately just making a three-hour round trip. I didn't know that I was doing a flow activity because I didn't know what a flow activity was. I didn't know that I was concentrating my mind and filtering out thoughts because I wasn't thinking about that. And if we fast forward a bit to when I was living in Paris and I used to do this all the time, consciously having accidentally found this flow experience in Montpellier, not knowing what a flow experience was, when I got to Paris... Uh, I, there were whole areas of Paris I'd never been to before and I wanted to see them. And at the same time, I was very keen to listen to more podcast series that I'd got into. All of them had very long episodes. So basically on a Sunday, for example, I would have a three-hour podcast and I would go on a three-hour walk. And gradually, by trial and error, I'd, I, I started to pay more attention to things. Like if I went past a supermarket and I stopped and thought, oh, I'm, oh, I'm outside the... Carrefour Market. Maybe I'll go in here because they have the pasta that I like and they have it on offer. If I wait until I get back, I've only got Casino and Monoprix and they charge more for it. But if I get it now, I'm going to have to carry it home. I won't be home for another two hours. It's a hot day today. Do I really want to? Oh, and actually, now that I'm doing all this thinking, I'm, not, I'm going to have to rewind the podcast by 30 seconds now because I just wasn't paying attention to any of it. I was really in the flow of it. Not that I would have used the word flow. I was really in the flow of it. And then I just faffed about, standing outside, the, et cetera, et cetera. So I was, by trial and error, realising that paying attention to something was um, the, the, the enjoyable thing about it. So I was accidentally finding flow without reading the book. The same goes for walking in a straight line or not, not fussing over every single junction. Where am I going? Should I go left? Should I go right? Let me get the map out. Should I... Not making all these decisions, just thinking, I'm going in a straight line. So every time there's a decision to be made, the answer is straight on, so you don't have to stop and think. You can carry on listening. Also, sometimes I'd find if I did accidentally walk into something interesting, like there were loads of people or there was something to see, I would stop the podcast and I would just take it all in until I'd had enough and then I'd put the podcast on and walk away again. So I was basically discovering concentration and order of thought by accident. And then reading the book, suddenly I found from page 94 onwards a chunk about how to find flow walking, and it exactly describes what I did by accident in Paris. It's probably the first time in my life that I've actually managed to do that. Yeah, um, I've had a message from two of our listeners who have actually told me that they've bought a copy of the book. Really? And are reading, yep, and are reading along with us. I just want to say, Adrian and Kerry do enjoy page 100 and the sex is going. <laughs> you know. We're going to have an orgy together. We're on page 95 at the moment, talking about walking, but we're about to... The, the next chunk is called Higher, Faster, Stronger. So that just sort of, like, builds up the mood. And then from page 99, we turn over to page 100, Sexy Flow Time with Dan. Sexy Flow Time with Dan. Interesting. Yep, yep. Oh, yes. I forgot. He starts the chapter talking about trying to give the body value in terms of adding up the market value oh, yes. of bone, muscle, skin, eyes, brain, etc. And he says, he concludes that it comes to a few pence. A few measly dollars. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't, don't sell your body off in, in commodities. It's only worth a few dollars, guys. But when he, so he, when he talks about walking, 
he says that just getting from A to B can be nothing but featureless drudgery. It's literally just picking your feet up and shoving them one in front of each other and enduring the pause in your life to get somewhere because it's necessary. And then eventually when you get there, you can do the thing that you have in mind that you want to do. So that's essentially walking not as flow. I think, I think this chapter for me, um, The Body and Flow, was all about trying to help the reader and, of course, us trying to help the listener. Remember that we have a tool that we can use to a much higher level when we focus on the activities that we're doing. So you've given us a lovely example of walking. And if we think back to a previous chapter about pleasure and enjoyment, this chapter very much links in with that because the body is a tool for both pleasure and for enjoyment. And we're looking at the more fulfilling aspect of activity that the the author is talking about in terms of enjoyment, rather than just perhaps the physical pleasure of um, being out in the fresh air and walking. You are taking walking to a higher level, of course, James. You are adding complexity to it by giving yourself some simple rules that were followable and then finding that achieving or sticking to those rules, such as we're going to walk in a straight line. We're not going to waste time thinking about those decisions. We're going to um, walk for a number of reasons, to listen to the podcast, to be outside for the physical activity, to see new things whilst you're walking. But you also gave yourself the the rule or the, the boundary that if something interesting did come up, you would stop. You would stop, you would enjoy it, and then you would get back on. So in that in that way that you've taken walking from the plodding along to get from A to B, you've given yourself some complexity and some rules, and you've followed them. And each time that you've been for a walk, you've you've either practiced that or built on that because I know that we've spoken about it um, uh, whilst we're not recording a number of times and some of your walks have gone on for three hours and I remember you surprised me when you walked to mine from somewhere very far away. From Soho to the private practice in a non-specific place somewhere between Croydon and Sutton it took me over four hours. I was amazed that you'd done it Um, and you, you came fully refreshed not exhausted you were here and you were full of energy, full of beans. I believe we actually recorded our summer special that day. Um, yeah, so so there was a lot that there's a lot that you do to turn a drudgery into a kind of a into intrigue. But it's something that everyone has access to. And so this chapter is very much looking at how we might use our body on whatever level. Unless one sets goals and develops skills, walking is just featureless drudgery. And then he says. As well as walking, any of these kinds of things like yoga and martial arts and so on are not enjoyable at all if you approach them with the attitude that you have to do them because they're good for you. Or like if you go, if you just set off uh, in a kind of like indignant way, going off on a walk, thinking, "Well, James said this is good for me, so I'm going to go on a walk. This better be good for me, otherwise I'm giving up on this thing." Then obviously that's not a flow activity. Um, (laughs) obviously that's not you listener because you're not the stupid caricature that I've (laughs) clearly got in my mind (laughs) but the the book when it talks about walking it talks about how the the graph of flow applies so for example um, you 
have to recognize your ability and your set yourself challenges. And he gives various examples, but I've given some examples, for example, walking only in a straight line or something like that. But to, if you want to try that, if you find yourself in a bad mood or something, or you find yourself stressed or irritated or something like that, um, I think the distinction to make is that just going for a walk, you can't just go out your front door and head off walking in the hope that this is some kind of, like I said at the beginning, like this is some kind of wonderful, cleansing, guru-inspired activity that will just create inner peace and harmony and you'll come back and all your problems will have gone away. You can go for a walk and you, with an untamed mind, it will just echo the chaos because you'll just be walking and you'll have the anger and the, the thoughts of stress and how your life isn't the way you want it and how your relationships and your everything, your health, your job and your career are not going the way you want them to. Those, are just, those will just be echoing around your head as you do your featureless drudgery, plonking one foot in front of the other, walking around. And who knows, you might get your phone nicked or it might start raining and then it'll just make it even worse. So what I suggest is you set, <laughs> you set yourself a specific route Go on that route and pay attention to the thoughts you have. Don't deviate from the route. Set yourself a rough kind of time. Know where you're going. Do the walk and just pay attention to the thoughts you have. Notice if you get angry. Notice if you get uncomfortable. Notice if you get slightly irritated that this is a waste of your time. Think, I think this is a waste of my time. That is a thought that is stopping me from enjoying this walk. How often do I have those thoughts? But you don't actually necessarily have to rationale all the thoughts. You don't have to... You just need to recognise the thoughts you have. And if you go for an hour's walk, you can spend an hour just recognising the thoughts you have. So that's if you're starting at the beginning of the flow graph, where your ability to control your mind is very low, therefore you should set the goal relatively low in order to meet it, which is to literally just go for a walk for an hour and to pay attention to your thoughts and not do anything about it. And when you get used to that and you get used to the thoughts that you're having and you start to think, oh yeah, I'm frequently thinking about that ex-relationship of mine and it makes me angry and I didn't realise I actually thought about it so much, then you can increase the complexity and you can go on a walk and you can work on controlling those thoughts about the ex every time you have them and not letting it ruin your mood for the rest of the day and make you angry and so on. And you can keep going like that until you do reach some kind of... Uh, until you don't even need to walk. You do just levitate around. <laughs> like... Like I, like Divine James Hall. Yeah, I think recognising your thoughts is definitely a step in the right direction. I feel like them being about an ex could make the walk very difficult, of course. And it might be wondering about <clears throat> if your thoughts about your ex are so troubling or if your thoughts on any topic are so troubling... You might also want to recognise on that walk that it's time to talk to someone about them. Well, then that's a productive thing that comes out of the walk. Because otherwise you Absolutely. might... Absolutely. If you have all these thoughts, but you then watch TV and go to Pilates and go to the cinema and go to a party, then the thoughts are just in the background ruining all of those experiences for you. If you're doing nothing but walking and those thoughts are ruining the walking, then you can concentrate on them and realise that if they are out of control, you do need to talk to someone about it and sort it out.
So the walking focuses the mind. Yeah, I like it. Um, so the walk is a way of working out what perhaps is troubling you at the moment, but at the same time you are engaging in that activity for the end goal perhaps of being able to just enjoy the activity for itself. I think we can walk away from the topic of walking now and we can stroll into the little piece that I recorded this week when I went on a walk and that takes us into thinking about uh, the sense of sight and in the book I really like this uh, Michele, Chitson Michele talks about most people having tin eyes not paying attention to what they're looking at at all and occasionally people feast their eyes on a beautiful landscape or a painting or more likely a person that they find attractive as, as if that's the only time that you should pay attention to what you're looking at because there's something beautiful in front of you. Again, I'm going to generalise and caricature humankind as idiots, but if I say most people probably just walk around thinking, that's a building, that's a car, I can use that to get to places, there's space here, I can walk into it, that place is crowded, I won't go in there, where are my car keys, there they are on the table, I found them, or... I can't find them, I'm going to have to look for them. I'm looking around, they're not there, they're not there, they're not there. Oh, there they are, I found them. That's how people use their sight, generally. So what I have uh, recorded whilst on my walk are some thoughts about paying attention and specifically prompted by a recent time when I was being critical of some uh, buildings on the South Bank in London and... I was, uh, what do you call it, brought to task by a friend who said, well, if all you're going to do is criticise, why don't you become a town planner and do something about it? And whilst I disagree with that, there is some obvious inherent truth to it, and that's what I discussed whilst I was having a walk. Excellent. So I hope you enjoy this next section. <laughs> Today... I'm taking a walk around some pretty hideous streets in order to talk about paying attention to what you can see around you. It's one of the ideas in chapter five of the Book of Flow. Chapter five looks at all the senses and today I'm just concentrating on sight. So I've come to walk around some pretty hideous buildings, not because I just want to have a good old criticise, not because the failed megalomaniac child is bitter that he hasn't controlled and designed the entire world, and in 30 years of failing to make the world perfect, I have nothing but a microphone in which to criticise what everyone else has done. My intention today is to talk about the idea of paying attention to what you see. I want to start with something a friend of mine said not so long ago. I was being critical about new developments along the south bank of the Thames in London at the moment, buildings that have gone up in the last, well, this century, the last 20 years or so. And some of them are perfectly fine. There is nothing I can think of that I particularly like at all, but there are some that are just inoffensive, quite boring, but smart new buildings. 
But there are plenty, there are more, more than enough, that I think are pretty hideous. And I was criticising the state of contemporary architecture. And I do mean contemporary in a chronological sense. I'm not talking about modern versus old or classical. I am the son of a, of a modernist architect. You could say I was kind of indoctrinated at a young age to appreciate modernism in architecture. Although, frankly, as I've talked about in previous episodes of this podcast, the reality of that was more that I hated everything that my parents liked until I was a teenager and gradually started to appreciate these things. But the fact is that I was aware of the ideas of modernism and I, I knew what sort of like 1930s modernist buildings looked like as a child because they were all around me in pictures and in books in my house. So I've always been aware of the idea that modern architecture as a style is well over 100 years old. And when you look at buildings being built right now, new as opposed to modern, they're not always any kind of improvement or evolution of the style of modernism. But I think particularly in the last 20 years, I would go so far as to say it is, uh, it, it's the worst. It's, I think it's the worst period of architecture since the um, introduction of the modernist movement around the start of the previous century. We're now 20 years into this century and there's no particularly distinctive style of architecture. There doesn't need to be a particularly distinctive style of architecture, but it would be nicer if it wasn't entirely the same kind of concrete and glass collections of shapes with a whole load of wacky cladding. The idea being that the wacky cladding makes your building look more interesting or differentiated from the other buildings and therefore you can market it and sell it and in a few years time you can just rip it off and put some different cladding on it and that style of architecture is everywhere around the world and there's so much construction at the moment that it doesn't matter where you are in the world there'll be somewhere where you just have great big anonymous slabs of building and They'll be in various different shapes and colours with the only distinguishable style being what patterns and colours have been stuck on the side of it. And I don't like the style and I'm quite critical of it. And when I was being critical of some of the buildings that have been thrown up on the South Bank in London, a friend of mine said, well, why don't you become a town planner and then you can do something about it. There's some obvious truth in it. Why don't I become a town planner and then I can do something about it? A few years ago, I'd have probably thought, yeah, that's a, that now, now you're talking. What have I been doing with my life? 
I was the megalomaniac child who wanted to perfect the world. I should have become the town planner that I always showed potential to be when I was making my own little miniature cities as a child, building little buildings and making road layouts and making railways and model airports and things. I should have become a town planner and then I'd be able to control an entire city, how it looks and how it works. The James Hall master plan model. And I could sit back and stop criticizing the world because I'd designed it and I'd made it exactly how I wanted it to be. So I can see the appeal in that if I rewind a few years. Now it's more likely to ring alarm bells and make me think, James, you're trying to control the world instead of the things that are actually within your control. And so I am very much, I think, unlikely to start to become a town planner. Clearly, if you believe in something and you devote your life to making even the smallest change for what you believe to be the better, then that's a decent way to spend your time. And if I think it's really important that people live in well-designed, neighborhoods that look nice and work well and have lots of trees and open space and natural light and buildings have nice views so that you can look out the window and not look onto something truly hideous then there's nothing wrong with me becoming a town planner and doing my little bit to try and make that happen to even the smallest extent so that I could look back on it and say I made these improvements and that was a good thing to do a good way to spend my time but right now, it's unlikely that I'm going to do that. I don't particularly want to. And so should I just shut up and never criticize what's around me because I'm not doing anything myself to improve it? And so when we got onto chapter five of the Book of Flow and it starts talking about people with tin eyes, people who don't pay enough attention to what's around them, it got me thinking about that quote. Here I am paying attention to what's around me and criticizing it and being to some extent told that if I am critical, then the best thing I should do is my small effort to try and do something about it to improve it. But what it's really made me do is Pay more attention. Notice more. Notice everything that I either like or don't like around me as much as possible. It's an ongoing process. It's very difficult to pay attention to what's around you. That's basically the main idea of this book. It's not a little life hack to be happier. It's not a way to get rid of your stress or depression and somehow find some kind of inner peace that takes you away from the horrors of the world. It's not a distraction from whichever political leader you don't like or whichever political ideas you don't like. It's a way to pay attention to the thoughts that you have in your mind and to recognize just how chaotic your mind is. I think sometimes I am at my most happy when I'm staring at particularly hideous architecture and noticing everything that I find truly hideous about it. 
And rather than devoting the rest of my life to becoming a town planner, I'm sorry to the friend who made this comment. I'm not trying to trash the comment. The comment is pretty vital for this conversation that I want to have, which is to pay attention and to be critical is to be concentrating on the world around me, concentrating on what I can see, paying attention to what's in front of me instead of letting my mind be chaotic in the past or the future, thinking about my own life and all the people in it and all the things I've done and all the things I could have done differently and every possible thing I could do in the future. And if anything, if I start to think about becoming a town planner in order to start to perfect the world, it's more likely to lead to some kind of state of anxiety than if I just stand here, look at something I dislike and criticise it. But there's a flip side to all of this, which is that it also makes me think about the things that I do particularly enjoy looking at. And so I'm not going to go on any more about things I find hideous. And instead, I'm going to take you to the Louvre in Paris. It's the biggest, um, most famous art gallery in the world. It doesn't matter if you've been there or not. I went there for the first time or at least inside for the first time earlier this year. And a number of things struck me. The first is the most obvious thing that you find in any art gallery anywhere around the world these days, which is every gallery you go into, you find people walking around paying absolutely no attention to the art whatsoever. That's nothing new in terms of having your mind distracted from what your eyes can see. But there's certainly a new element of the last 20 years or so. And it's perfectly or very acutely exaggerated in the room in the Louvre, which has the world's most famous painting, the Mona Lisa. Probably one of the most ridiculous rooms in the world, in my opinion. It's huge. It has only one painting in it. So in general, in the Louvre, you have large and small galleries, but they're, even the ones that have some of the most well-known classic masterpieces are in rooms where there's maybe 10 different paintings. Some of the rooms are stuffed full of paintings. But not the Mona Lisa. It's one enormous atrium with one tiny little painting at one end. The most famous painting in the world. And when you go into the room, the first thing you see... Well, the first thing you see is the backs of lots of people. And then when you squeeze in a little bit, you realise that your first, your, first, your first sighting of the world's most famous painting is on maybe 50 screens in front of you, ranging from the majority of them, which will be smartphones, right up to the biggest tablet devices that are available, giant kind of like dinner trays, showing you the picture multiple times 
as if you're some kind of security guard looking at 50 screens of CCTV. And there she is grinning at you from all of these screens. So then if you want to actually see the painting, you have to try and nudge your way further forwards until eventually you get something approximating a reasonable distance, depending on your eyesight. I always have to remember to take my glasses to art galleries because I generally don't wear glasses. And then I forget that everything in an art gallery will be slightly blurry from a few meters. So you get close enough, but there's still a big gap between the painting and the barrier. Not to mention the security guards who stand there. And then finally, you have however many centimetres of bulletproof glass between the actual painting and what you can see. And remember, you're in a brightly lit room, so you have the reflections of everyone's clothing and all their shiny phones in front of the painting as well. I'd recommend going there just for this novelty, but in terms of actually looking at a painting, like I said, it is one of the most ridiculous setups of any art gallery anywhere in the world. So let's go out of there and let's go to another gallery. And I don't want to talk about any of the more famous paintings in the Louvre. I want to talk about one painting in particular, though. You might know it, you might not. Doesn't matter either way. It's a picture of a young man kind of, not exactly kneeling down, but bent over his knee his head down in thought against some water. And it's a picture I think I may have seen a few years ago when it was on loan, or if it was, if I'm right in my memory, it was on loan to the Musée d'Orsay on the other side of the river. And I went to an exhibition there. I certainly came away with a postcard of this painting, so I'm, that's why I'm guessing that's where I first saw it. Um, I also have a bookmark of it from somewhere else. So I was very aware of the contents of this painting. I knew it was a boy with his head down, deep in thought, and nothing in the background but some rocks and some sea. No other people, no other nature. No obviously dramatic weather or lighting or anything like that. And I went to the room where this painting is hung and it's in one of the smaller rooms and it's got maybe 20 other paintings around it. It's not one of the famous ones and therefore the gallery, whilst busy enough with a few people, doesn't have the whole world in there with all their phones. So you can actually go up to this painting and look at it. Although it's quite high on the wall so it helps if, like me, you're a kind of giraffe and you can look at it without craning your neck. But I want you to imagine yourself there. It doesn't matter if you have an accurate picture in your mind of what this painting looks like. It could be any painting. I'm choosing this one because I like it. But you can just think of a painting that you know and imagine you're looking at it in the gallery. There's a lot around you that can distract you before you even start to pay attention to your own thoughts. Let's say there's 20 other people in the gallery. You might have gone to visit the Louvre for a number of reasons. Ranging from being 
the heir to Brian Sewell and having an encyclopedic knowledge of art history and simply continuing your quest to saturate your brain with all that is art. But going right the way down to someone who just went to Paris on holiday, heard about the Louvre being a famous place and wanted to see what that's all about. So you turn up and you've taken a picture of the Mona Lisa and you've seen a couple of other paintings that you've heard are famous. You don't have to know anything about any of them. And you walk into this gallery and you see the one that I like. You might have all kinds of feelings. You might think, I don't know anything about art. Am I supposed to be getting something from this? I'm not really getting anything from it. Seems to me just pretentious to just stare at a painting and have some kind of intellectual thoughts. That's for other people, that's not for me. And really standing here right now with all these other people around me who possibly know a lot more about art than I do, I can imagine myself starting to feel quite anxious and self-conscious if I just stand here still staring at a painting. And so I'm probably just going to have a glance around, take note of the things that I can recognise. Oh, that one's a landscape. Oh, that one's got someone smiling. Oh, that's the royal family. And then move on. And probably, to be honest, pay more attention to the people in the gallery. She's ugly. He's wearing silly shoes. She's got a funny face. That child's misbehaving. Look how many people there are from different parts of the world. Isn't that interesting? We've all come together into this room. And you're, by this point, not paying attention to any of the paintings. And I'm not being judgmental here, because judgment is totally irrelevant to this conversation. It doesn't matter if you are an art critic or if you know nothing about art, or like me, you're somewhere in the middle. And it doesn't make any difference to the kind of person you are as to what thoughts come into your mind. I just listed some examples, but you could have... I mentioned that you might see a painting of a royal family. You might be completely distracted by ideas of wealth, inequality. Maybe you're a devout Republican, and seeing a picture of the royal family will just prompt you to get angry. Equally, you might love the royal family of any country and any period, and just get lost in your own daydreams about all that is a monarchy and not really be paying any attention to the painting in front of you so much as the ideas in your head of why you like the monarchy or what you think about monarchy as a concept. You might be stressed, you might be tired, you might get distracted about your job and you might start to think about what your life is going to be like in a year's time and you might start to catastrophize about everything that could go wrong. You might just be completely scatty, flicking between anything I've just mentioned and a whole catalogue of other thoughts. But the point is that you're not standing there and looking at the painting and paying attention to what's in front of you and the information coming in from your eyes. And I've certainly 
found myself in situations before where I've been looking at something and it's just there in front of me and my crazy disorganized thoughts are all over the place and I'm paying no attention to what's in front of me. And so in the book, one of the main ideas is to become aware of thoughts as they come into your mind and not to try and eliminate them, just to know that your mind left untamed is a total swirling chaos of thoughts, making it almost impossible to concentrate on anything. And far more so now that you have access to the whole world and the entire sum total of human knowledge in your pocket, it's almost impossible to pay attention to anything if you let yourself be distracted by any of that. And so I started this talking about paying attention to things I find ugly and criticizing them. But it's just as important to pay attention to things that you enjoy looking at. Or if you've never thought about them before, to look at them and to decide if you enjoy them or not because your eyes are constantly feeding your brain information. If you don't pay attention to it, if you're completely distracted, then you have constant input from your eyes being processed by your brain alongside a relentless stream of thoughts about everything in your life, good and bad, but usually negative. So this book talks about the idea of psychic entropy being how your mind wanders into catastrophizing about the future and all the things you've done wrong in your life and everything that might go wrong as a consequence and what you can do about it and how that might go wrong. And so have a go at looking at something. Have a go at looking at a really ugly, brand new building and the purpose is not to get you angry about the state of architecture. The purpose is not to get you dismayed at the fact that you can't make a huge difference. The purpose is not to make you suddenly notice things that you'd never noticed before that are unpleasant and have just another thing in your life that's destructive. And similarly, if you look at something wonderful, the purpose is not to find some kind of wonderful peace and harmony and distraction from all the problems in your life. The purpose is just to concentrate on it. And that's what I'm trying to do increasingly, both positively and negatively. So, like I said, I'm not attacking the idea because it makes perfect sense. If I want to control the way the world looks, I shouldn't sit around criticizing it. I should do something about it and become a town planner. But it's a different issue. I don't want to control the world. I want to be aware of my thoughts and my reactions to the things that I see and to be able to pay attention to things and not just descend into the multiplied chaos of the thoughts that were already swirling around my brain and now the new ones of this is all hideous and why isn't it better? So I'm going to leave you in that imaginary gallery in Louvre, imagining you're looking at a painting. And I don't want you to feel bad if you can't imagine it or if 
you're constantly distracted by the problems in your life, past, present or future, your health, your love life, your career, your mental health, your perceived success, your social life, any of that. You will undoubtedly have all these thoughts in your mind if you just sit still and try and imagine you're in, a, in an art gallery. What I want you to do is to notice every single one of those thoughts and let yourself have that thought and to just try and leave it instead of moving on to rationale about all the consequences of that thought. Just have the thought, recognize the thought and go back to the imaginary painting. And when you get to a point where you can picture that painting and not be completely distracted by all the other thoughts you're having, then you can start to move on to think about what you think about the painting. And then you'll start to train your mind to just look at things. And if you have never previously showed any interest in art, you don't need to think of it as some elitist thing for art snobs, you can realize that you too can just look at a painting and decide what you think of it. And as you can hear, I'm now back in traffic. So I'm going to leave you with the sound of lung cancer. Stream of consciousness, but at the same time, a very well-planned section that the listener has just listened to. <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, on with the chapter, on with the book. We're getting a bit sexy now because we're talking about sex as flow. Um, this is, is kind of an interesting section because it talks about the different ways that you can enjoy your... Well, the whole book, uh, the whole chapter is talking about the different ways you can enjoy your bed, body. But, but sex is kind of one of those that's accessible to most people, but not actually to everyone, of course. Um, so when I was reading this the first time and highlighting almost all of it, which would have been a number of years ago, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps I would have had a different take on sex in those days. But what we're looking at is the different ways you can, you can engage in sex as a higher activity. I guess like the way Sting and Trudy Stylamite with their tantric sex. But even, even that is a higher, higher level. I think one of the things is about sex and relationships and 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 how we think about it how we engage in it um how do we turn a uh, an activity we've done thousands of times into something that's new and exciting how do we use our body in a new way um and i think all of the listeners would have uh, different takes on that but chitzen mickley starts off this section by talking about the unconscious and sometimes conscious drive uh, the power of it and how it can actually affect everything that we do and i think that's something to probably start with talking about how the need and the drive to have sex and to find a partner or to procreate or to um or for recreational sex is so strong that it can, it can actually overtake everything else that we do and i think we've spoken before james perhaps in this podcast 
um, perhaps in this season, but perhaps in others, about how the need to acquire wealth or the need to have the best clothes or the need to get a better job or the need to have a bigger house or a better car is actually, in a way, um, a kind of a part and parcel of that need to have sex. Like the more status symbols, the more wealth that you can acquire, the, the better dressed you are, in inverted commas, the, 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 the more stylish you are, the more well-groomed you are, the more fantastic and rich and expensive your lifestyle is, the more likely it is that you would be able to get more sex. So, so the, the unconscious drive or the drive to have sex can affect absolutely everything else we do. Um, and bringing that into your conscious mind, asking yourself why you're trying to achieve and attain certain things and trying to find out where that drive is from to get the promotion or buy a new car or get um, clothes that are potentially way more expensive than they need to be, I think is an important part of being able to bring your drive and your desire back to something that's more practical, more fulfilling and more enjoyable. Um, I mean, what do you look for in a partner? <laughs> um, well, I have spent a year not looking for a partner. So I can either hypothetically think about what I will look for in a future partner or I can try and remember what I used to look for in a partner, which is probably not relevant anymore. Um, this is, this is uh, specifically a section where I don't really want to talk about myself because I don't have concluded thoughts, which would therefore be possibly not very satisfying for the listener. Uh, to hear me trying to make sense that this is one area where I still have an element of chaos to my thoughts, where if I try to make sense of them right now in front of the microphone, it might be frustrating for everyone involved. So it's something I definitely need to come back to. I don't think anything you've just said is very uh, controversial. I think it all makes sense because obviously we, in the last season, we did our episode on perversion where we were to some extent controversial. I mean, it's, it's not, we, this isn't what we said, but you could be jokingly reductive and, and say that we made an episode that was basically, you can be a pedo, you can be gay, it's all perversion, what's the difference? We didn't say that, but we did say that there is a scale of established normality which then branches out increasingly into forms of deviation from normality, all of which can be categorised as perversion, but then you have inherent problems of some of them being quote-unquote acceptable, legal, controversial and with various considerations. And I think, Dan, you felt very uncomfortable at the end of that episode that we had just opened a can of worms, left it there and walked away from it. Yeah, yeah. I guess this small section of the chapter um, in, in, in The Body is Flow, it's talking about these things in a more positive way, I guess, like the differences in sexual choice. In fact, I think you already mockingly read out the one of the sections that I might choose. The same sexual act can be experienced as painful, revolting, frightening, neutral, pleasant, pleasurable, enjoyable or ecstatic. And I think, you know, both physically and intellectually, when you either think or engage in a physical act of sex or love with another person, everyone's choice of what that is and how they 
and everyone's experience of of that can be different so you know when talking about sex and talking about um love there's a huge there's a huge range of experience i know when i was studying my masters we looked uh, at ethics and we looked at a certain group of men in the 80s i, I want to say it was in in ireland um but could have been scotland and it was about um and they were into snm and three or four of them were brought to court for acts that they did consensually in private you know to do with um pain and and it caused a huge stir not only in the gay community but in in the wider community that these men who had all engaged in consensual acts that some of course would find appalling and and, and abhorrent and disgusting but it was consensual and they were finding pleasure in it and it was something to do with um you know like acts that we might consider were torturous to them were pleasurable but anyway it caused a huge controversy and 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 we looked at it in our ethics module about what was right and even today and that was 2016 we were looking at it people were find you know people in the classroom relatively open-minded people were were finding it a struggle to understand how some people could find things that we would that that the other another person would consider torturous sexually pleasurable so there's a huge range of not only action and choice and options when it comes to sex and enjoyment of the body in a sexual way, but there's also a huge, huge variety in how other people will view that and interpret that and um, how they will engage with that and the, the ethical and moral stance they will take towards that but to take what you've just said there the first thing there's a huge (laughs) there's a huge uh, there's a huge box of tricks huge box of sex toys there's a huge range of different forms of sex that's number one and then number two no matter what you do in the bedroom on the kitchen table in the car park uh anyone who might look at that could have a different reaction to whether or not they think it's good bad, exciting, boring, right, wrong, whatever. So the two things there, one is the first one lends itself perfectly to flow because if you think about a sort of like a typical teenager's first experience, most of the anxiety comes from, am I going to get it right? Am I going to be good enough? Uh, or they might be arrogant or whatever. But basically, the, 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 there's a whole world of sex and you're starting from the beginning. And instead of looking at that, flow chart and thinking I have no experience I have no proven ability I need to set my challenge solely at getting through this without anyone being hurt going home crying etc if that if you match your ability with your challenge then it's possible that you can achieve the flow of not just ejaculation but also order of consciousness And therefore, the same goes if you've been having sex for years and you've been uh, you've you've been, for example, married for a number of years and you're worried about the relationship becoming stagnant. And instead of just buying up everything from Ann Summers and buying the book on Karma Sutra just because you think that that's what other people have done and that's a sort of like a life hack to be able to spice up that marriage, if you feel like you're just doing it because you think you should do it and other people have done it and therefore 
it's going to be the solution to long-term success in a relationship, then that's you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. You need to, um, well, I don't know. You said if you do that, then it's not. It's not. You're not necessarily going to enjoy trying out something new. And then, but then the other thing, the what will other people think? That is the is sex is the same as anything else. What other people think is out of your control. So that's the main thing to concentrate on. You can't control what other people think. I think lots of, uh, certainly lots of kind of, I'm going to say something controversial now because we've, we've been too tame in this episode. Lots of kind of like gay rights activism, whilst I fully support the act of doing that for all kinds of good causes, and obviously selfishly, it is in my interest for that to be a thing for people to campaign for acceptance of gay rights and so on. It can sometimes get into the area of gay people thinking, I'm not finished until everyone in the world thinks the way I think and realises that I'm, you know, thinks that I'm fabulous and accepts me for who I am. And until that day, I'm just angry with the world because they're wrong and I need to show them that they're wrong and I need to change their minds. And only then will the world be okay. Only then will I've controlled the world. That's exactly the same as me being the megalomaniac child thinking, I want to control the world. I want to decide how it looks, how it works. I want to control other people. There's, there's an element to which... Um, fighting for for social justice and for human rights and things can deviate from the the human rights aspect and the the goodness of that cause and can go into the kind of like I want to control what other people do and think realm. So it's to some extent, if you have a problem of abuse of human rights, the the task is to change people's minds to stop unnecessary and unjust physical or mental abuse to someone um, who is being abused about something that is beyond their own control. It's not a choice that they've made to do something which is then being attacked. Uh, something out of their control. So, for example, if we assume that it is either 100% or somewhere between 50 and 100% nature that determines sexuality then it's not my choice to be gay. So if someone attacks me for that, 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 that attack is arguably unjust and wrong. And so it makes sense that in order to stop people from attacking like that in whatever form, you do have to, to some extent, change minds, and therefore you do have to be, to some extent, controlling. But if you set out to think, my point of view is right their point of view is wrong, I need to show them that they're wrong, the chances are you'll just irritate them and make them resent gay people even more and not actually be effective in what you're doing. I think there's a lot of uh, activism that is quite that has quite a negative impact because it assumes that the person who is, for example, homophobic is just an ignorant bit of pond life and you, the divine educated, middle-class Londoner need to tell that pond life that they're wrong and make them change their ways so that justice can be achieved in the future and you have controlled the world and made it how it should be. Uh, I think there is sometimes an element of that to fighting for human rights 
it can deviate from um, the problem of abuse of human rights into I think I'm right, you're wrong, and I will attempt to control that and I will not give up the fight until I win. Yes, and talking about deviation from what it is we were talking about, um, I think perhaps that this is um, the, what you're saying now is kind of in answer to our previous podcast rather than being on topic of the body as flow, Jay. It is, and that was totally accidental. I didn't plan that and didn't intend to. And I'd actually had the problem in my mind of how do we resolve the perversion episode where you felt dissatisfied, and I've just accidentally done some work to solve that. So let's get back to your sexy... Imagine Dan's body writhing around with a twink, and we're, we're back in the room. We're watching. We're on cam five watching Dan. <laughs> OK, so... So, so, so it's only a short section of this chapter. There's not that much to say about it. But what, what, what the author starts to ask the reader to consider is that, you know, when you first, and you did, you, you touched on this. When, we, when you first start, when you, <laughs> what have I touched on? <laughs> exactly. When you, you touched on that, when you first start having sex and you first, uh, you know, your, your first kiss, your first romantic in, enjoyment, the first time you have, sex the first date um they're huge challenges and they're exciting and it, he talks about how you can be kind of like uh, actually fulfilled for weeks you know thinking and wondering about it and thinking about it in your head and experiencing all those feelings and those emotions that go with it but then when you've been in a, in a relationship for a long time things change if you've been having sex with the same person for years if you're married to the same person for years or just in a long-term relationship, things can become very, very dull if you do not engage in the psychological aspect of making sex enjoyable. And I know we touched a little bit about the ethics and the variety of sex that people have. And it isn't just about, like you say, going and getting the Karma Sutra like Sting and uh, Trudy Styler and engaging in complex tantric sex. It's about working with your partner and yourself uh, psychologically having conversations about how to make it more enjoyable and it might not it, it isn't just about uh, oh okay well you know let's go and get a gimp costume and some ropes and we're going to do a bit of a light snm you know because it's about what's going on in your head that has made the sex less enjoyable and you can't ever go back to having sex with someone for the first time after that time you, you, you always have to find different ways of engaging with that same person to make it more interesting or more enjoyable or more fun. And it isn't always necessarily about changing the physical act of what you do, but it's about changing the way you're thinking about how you're having sex. But conversely, if you um, really enjoy having sex with someone and you've been with them for a long time, then to get those ropes and cufflinks out and the uniform from the back of the wardrobe and so on, then... Cuff, cufflinks, cufflinks, you mean handcuffs? Handcuffs, yes, sorry. Maybe cufflinks. Who, you, you, a fetish <laughs> could be anything. Um, yes, James, get those yes. out from the back of the wardrobe. That is an obvious flow activity because you have established the flow of enjoying your sex life. You've met your ability and your challenge and it's time to increase the challenge to... Increase the complexity. So get those cufflinks out. 
yeah, spice it up a little bit with the cufflinks. You know, get a shirt with uh, with holes rather than buttons. Slide those cufflinks through the holes. Maybe you could get him or her to do up the cufflink for you. Maybe you could do up the cufflinks in the mirror or with a blindfold. Who knows? Maybe try different coloured cufflinks. Maybe change that dress shirt and wear it with a... I don't know, anyway. I did say we would get into the... Uh, the titillating details of Dan's sex life and I think that was that was too uh that was too pithy for you to have just made that up that was definitely talk from experience oh I love a bit of cufflink play as we call it in the scene um but yeah but he's talking about the idea of thinking about if something has got boring or monotonous or dull or doesn't have the same drive how what's going on in your mind you know are you actually thinking about having to please the other person or not being able to pleasure the other person is there a different way of doing it are you thinking about sex as the goal rather than romance and intimacy is there a way of changing changing up what you think are you feeling too much pressure are you is your head overwhelmed with other thoughts and yet you're still trying to have the sex in a mechanical way that doesn't lead to the pleasure that you can get from being physical with another person um I know from speaking to you know various people throughout my life that some people seem to think of sex as that you know the act of fucking like intercourse that's it that's sex but actually there's 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 hundreds of different ways that you can enjoy physical intimacy which you know can fall into the category of sex unlike when you're you know first starting off and you're a teenager and sex is about that ultimate goal of basically um wham bam splodge you know i thought you were gonna say any hole that ultimate goal of any hole yes um if you like james if you like um but no it's about thinking about how you can use um romance and love and um and, and intimacy in a way to enjoy your body and uh, your partners or partners well actually i'm glad you said that because there's a bit in the in this chapter that I quite like on monogamy, whereby uh, Michele, Chitson Michele, I'm just, I'm so pleased that I've finally learnt his name because I hadn't when we started this series and now I'm just dropping it in for no good reason other than to show off that I've remembered it, which is not a good thing for me to do. Um, Michele talks about monogamy and says, we're probably not naturally monogamous animals, but monogamy presents a flow activity through goals, feedback, and the pursuit of complexity because if you just change from one partner to another all the time every time you want something new you don't actually make your sex life more complex you just give it random variety if however you choose to adhere to the the goals and feedback of monogamy he's not saying that this is like with everything in the flow book such as being a Nazi. He's not saying that this is right or wrong. He's not coming at it from a religious or a moral point of view in relation to monogamy, but he's saying that what the socially accepted norm of monogamy does present is an excellent controlled flow activity with rules and feedback from that one partner and everyone else in the family and the complexity of trying to make that relationship fulfilling over a long period of time, as opposed to just easily getting bored and moving on to the next partner. Yep, yeah, and I think, 
I think like with many of the topics we come up with and the book is raising, there's so much more you could go into to think about it. But the chapter is simply asking you to consider how when when you're thinking about or engaging in sex, you can make it a more enjoyable activity and a flow activity by thinking about the psychological side of it, thinking about the things that are getting in the way of that and thinking about how you can be in many ways more mindful with the the the, the physicality. Have, are you done with sex or is, is there still a little bit more to dribble out? <laughs> um, oh, disgusting. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the way the book is summarised is what is important is the general principle that sexuality like any other aspect of life can be made enjoyable if we are willing to take control of it and cultivate it in the direction of greater complexity when you said cultivate I couldn't help but picture you having sex on your allotment Good, brilliant, excellent, very good. Nice link. So the rest of the book is all about the five senses and so there's an introduction to the neurology of the central nervous system and I can actually talk about this with some authority because I'm currently teaching two young Spanish boys science in English and we've just been going through all the senses so I am aware of, or rather I have revised all the things that I'd completely forgotten from GCSE science to do with uh, all, the, all the words for the senses. Uh, so as a very, very brief summary, your whole body is covered in sensors. Your skin, is the, which is all over your body, is the sensor for touch, which feels pressure and converts that into an electrical signal, which goes to your brain. I, I like to jokingly say that pain isn't real because all the other senses have a real thing. When you hear, you hear real physical vibrations of uh, the air around you, which the eardrum picks up. And then the cochlea, I think it is, behind the eardrum converts that physical vibration into an electronic signal to your brain. With your eyes, this is my favourite one, the, the whole world is nothing but reflected light off all the shapes in front of you. And when the light reflects off a shape and lands on the retina, which is the receptor to process the information and send it through the optic nerve to your brain, it's the, 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 the lines of reflection from the object cross over at the point of entering your eye, cross over in the pupil and create a resected image on the retina that's actually upside down. So you see the whole world upside down and then your brain automatically turns it the other way up to correct that. Okay, okay, you're just showing off with science here, Absolutely. Come on, I come on, get to the I point. I haven't been able to do this before and now I can. I'm going to make use of those classes in English where I teach science to two very, very bright young boys. Then... And uh, the, the listeners are thanking you right absolutely. now. Absolutely. Then there's smell, which is gases and vapours in your nose, and then taste, which is the taste buds, which have a chemical reaction with saltiness, bitterness, sweetness, sourness on your tongue. So all of that is an actual physical reaction of something that you can explain in terms of, of, of something physical or chemical that's happening. But with pain, even though there is impact with your skin, so, for example, you might hit it or split it the actual the, the pain itself doesn't exist it's just, your brain invents pain as an evolutionary precaution for survival so pain doesn't exist mm. i don't say that absolutely no, i but i disagree i disagree why? it's it's a 
It's, it's to do with chemical uh, neurotransmitters. It's to do with um, electrical impulses. Yes, but that's in your brain. In... Everything becomes an electrical signal. In all, so the physical sound becomes an electric signal in your brain. The, the pain is also an electric signal in your brain. So that, to that extent, it does exist. But it's not, it's not, the pain isn't a, a wave of light or sound. Pain isn't a chemical reaction on your tongue. It's a, it's an, it's a, it's, it's a product of your brain rather than a real thing happening that you are interpreting. So, so is physical pleasure? Yes. Well, I see. Pleasure and pain don't exist. Very nice, James. Well, I jokingly say they don't exist because obviously what exists is whatever you have going on in your brain. So they exist as much as supposedly real physical things. So I, when I, I don't believe they don't exist. I just jokingly say they don't exist just because they're different to vision, taste, smell and sound. But the book looks at all the, chap all, the, um, all, the all the senses and I use the vision one for my uh, topic of paying attention to what you look at in the world. And again, with that, if you go to an art gallery and you remember that flow chart, today, if you've listened to me on my walk talking about art and you decide to go to an art gallery for the first time in, in, in ages, remember that you can't just go into that gallery having expressed no particular interest in art before and hearing me talk has inspired you. You can't go into that gallery and suddenly assume that you will have the entire sum knowledge of... of Oh, someone at the private practice. You can't go into that gallery and assume that you'll just have the, the sum total of all knowledge of art history, and therefore you'll be able to have divine interpretations of art and uh, an, un, a truly deep understanding of everything on the wall and come out like you've really deeply engaged. You need to set your ability and your challenge. So if, you've, if it's been years since you went into an art gallery and you generally don't have that much interest or knowledge in art there's, there's nothing to stop you if you want to make that a flow activity but you have to start by thinking I'm just going to find a painting I like and look at it and think about what I like about it and then several years down the line if you want if you've decided that from now on you're going to devote your life to a, a lifelong passion in art then eventually you can make it as complex as Brian Saul the divine Brian Saul managed but you have to you can't just start at that level, it's like any flow activity. And he basically says the same thing for all the senses. So I don't know if you want to go through every sense, taste, smell. No, no, I don't think we need to do that. I, I think it's about um, the book's guiding the listener now. <laughs> the, the book's guiding the reader, um, and we're hopefully guiding the listener to, to rethink some of the simple pleasures, some of the more accessible pleasures and enjoyment that you can get from from the senses music's one that i think um is very accessible because all we really need to do is turn on the radio or or, or choose a playlist on spotify or ask a friend for a recommendation of some music and then but is that true is what true well that's all we need to do to be able to access the music but not to achieve flow yes yeah sorry I'm talking about, I am talking about the accessibility. You're absolutely right there, yes. The book looks at different things and it often gives examples of um, the chess champion, the ballerina, the mountain climber, the, um, the gymnast, the, um, the sportsman. You know, it, it gives examples of these lofty, 
well-practiced people who've invested years and years in achieving flow. And this chapter, the body in flow or the body is flow, is talking about accessible ways to access flow activities. And when you're talking about music or... I mean, you don't even need to go to a gallery to experience a painting. I've recently Googled... Um, George Stubbs because I remember I saw this really beautiful picture of a horse and then I remembered I also saw this really weird picture he'd done of a horse skeleton and all you have to do is google it and, and if you have internet access objection no not all you need to do is google it because that's a completely different experience of a painting when it's a brightly lit screen showing you other pictures all around it and text and so on. It's completely different to... No, no, James, no, James, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. I'm absolutely right, but why am I wrong? No, no, you're absolutely wrong, because what you're talking about is, is actually against what you have just described. So if you want to access the um, starter for 10 experience of a painting, you can just Google it. You can look at it. You can choose which picture you like. You can think about what you like about it. And if you want to experience it on a higher level, you go to the National Gallery and you find the Stubbs picture of, I don't know, whatever the horse was called, Rain Dance or some, something like that, or Imagination or Victory or something. You can find that horse and you sit in front of that painting and you enjoy it at that level. Okay. If you then want to experience it at a higher level, you um, ask one of the um, gallery stewards to describe um, what was going on and how that picture was painting and about the colours and where it's blah, blah, blah. But if you want to just engage with your, the visual aspect of seeing something, which is what this chapter is about, James, making things accessible to people. I mean, listen, apparently when you listen to Spotify, the range and the compression means that lots of things that we would be hearing if we heard the band live or from, from the, I don't know, the CD or from the vinyl, we won't be hearing. But still, you can enjoy, you know, um, Moonshaped Pool by Radiohead on Spotify, can't you? Is that what it's called? The point being is these are accessible to us, you know. Um, Okay, you know, go to your kitchen and get out all the herbs and spices that people have in little pots that they generally, well, or will often allow to go stale over three or four years and only occasionally use. Put them all out on the side. Open the pots of herbs. See which one you actually like the smell of. Maybe taste some of them. And you're engaging with the process of flow. You're, going, you're not going, oh, shit, I need to cook a spag bowl. Oh, don't you have oregano in that? Yes, you do. Oh, it's probably basil. Everyone has basil. You know, you're... Go, stop, give yourself half an hour, see which herbs and spices in your kitchen you enjoy. See if you can work out which ones are actually stale and should probably throw away because they have been there for four years. Or if you wanted to do it at this higher level, you would go on a cookery masterclass. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying. <clears throat> this chapter is about reminding yourself that throughout the drudgery of your life, Throughout the go to work, come back home, got to do that for the neighbour, must do this and collect the post, go to the post office, buy a present for mum, it's Christmas, no, do this, do that, do that. You can stop and you can engage any at any time, unless, of course, you have something so psychologically or physically overwhelming that is disabling you from doing that. And even, even then, you know, like, for example... Um, when we're talking about psychological distress and trying to distract oneself from it or trying to uh, rem remove focus from the distress or the pain, physical or mental pain, you can use things like lavender. And, OK, on one level, I think, as a nurse, yeah, OK, lavender is not going to take away post-traumatic stress disorder. But what it can do... <laughs> 
<laughs> what it can do. Actually, in fact, James, James, let's well, you enjoy these now. Just have a look around your room. Let's stop a minute. So perhaps there might be there might be something right now that you can engage with sensually. I'm looking behind you and I'm seeing a whole host of different watercolour and pencil drawings and, 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 and every now and again I get distracted and wonder what some of them are. But I'm just wondering, is there anything in the room that you could engage with now for a couple of minutes? I really like the idea that there's something there that you could smell. For some reason I find it really funny. But, you know, is there a satsuma? Is, uh, is there a pot of herbs? Is there some manuka honey? What's there, James? Do you have some sage you could burn for a moment? You wouldn't believe how sensual my landlady is. There is everything you've just listed and more. But I'm going to engage with one thing. See if you can guess what this is. So just for a moment, I'm, I'm going to... Whilst James has popped off, I'm just going to burn a little bit of... I see. Did you guess which sense I engaged with? You see, I don't think that you did engage in a flow activity there, James. You think I just got up and banged a gong and reverted back to my old ways? Yeah. Now, I'm going to... Now, I tried to use this old box of matches and the, the, the listener with acute hearing might even have heard that, but these matches are so old. Ah, oh, and there we go. So I've just lit a match from an old box of matches and I've got a bit of spiritual sage. I don't know whether it's the same as normal sage. I think it is. And there's this idea that you burn a little bit of sage and it gets rid of evil spirits um, or darkness or bad energy or some crap like that, which you don't want in your house. And lots of people don't like this smell, but I kind of do like this smell. And someone gave this to me to sort of cleanse the house spiritually and just taking a moment to like smell something like this it's it's quite overpowering obviously there's a i mean i'm holding it in front of my nose i'm pretty certain that's not what you're meant to do but just taking a moment out out from whatever it is you're doing to engage one of your senses in something that takes your concentration from the overpowering rigmarole and 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 chaos that you started off talking about this afternoon um sorry during the podcast today is engaging in a flow activity a flow activity is not something that has to necessarily last for hours so for example this could be the gateway into me thinking oh what other burning smells could i engage with and enjoy today maybe it would take me from this to oh hang on a second i do remember there's something else i also have this japanese um i do not know what it's called um a massage therapist I know gave it to me. It's a small piece of wood that you just char a little bit. And I won't set fire to it now because it, it creates a huge amount of smoke, but you can smell the charred remains of it before. But that, engaging for a moment your senses, because I, I haven't smelled this piece of, piece of Japanese wood for a long time. I haven't smelled the burning sage for a long time. 
stopping, even though you're in the middle of doing your finances or even though you're in the middle of an, of an argument or a text conversation, stopping, giving yourself the permission to focus and concentrate on something that engages your senses is the beginning of, and a very, very accessible way to experience flow. And another thing that you could do at home, and again, it's something that we use in mental health as a distraction for people who are quite genuinely distressed, is, is finding something with a texture, something like um, a tennis ball or a, or a golf ball or a penny. It doesn't really matter. And just holding it in your hands, feeling it, allowing yourself to actually focus on the sensations on your hand. You can even do it with your other hand just take your finger and stroke the middle of your other hand and understand that sensation. Take your focus away from the thoughts that you are having and experience your body for a moment. You know, the other thing, that's, and it's a bit hippie-ish, is take your shoes and socks off and feel your feet on the floor, but focus on that. But the, feel, the point is that your, bo your, your body is covered in all these senses and they are constantly feeding information into your brain and most of the time, I don't think this is me dismissing the world as cretins, most of the time people ignore that and they just let their otherwise chaos of thoughts about the past and the future swirl around their head and there's all this information coming in about taste, smell, sight, sound and the other one, and um, they just don't pay attention to it. We, I don't pay attention to it. I'm not talking about you as if you're wrong. I don't pay attention to it. I am, through trying to pay attention to things, I'm realising just how little I've paid attention before. Even someone like me who grew up quite artistic and has been to hundreds and hundreds of art galleries, it surprises me in 2019 how I'm only just starting to really pay attention when I go to art galleries. I used to be the person who would race around a gallery just walking around thinking, okay, uh, landscapes, portraits, yeah, like those, like those, abstracts, oh, no, nothing in here I really like. Next one, uh, oh, yeah, that one's quite good. Oh, I'll go and have a look at that. Okay, right, yeah, seen that. Next one, okay, done. Art gallery ticked off not paying attention to what I'm looking at at all. Also probably being totally distracted by the, th the, the amount of times I've actually stood in front of a painting and I've just been there with my thoughts and you could have, you could just, you know, like jokingly swap the painting for a picture of some hardcore pornography and I wouldn't even notice that you'd done it. Like it was a Der Darren Brown type experiment because my thoughts are so distracted. <laughs> yeah, actually I remember that when I was younger, I went to a gallery and it actually had something. And the and the the piece of art was called the outhouse. And what it was was uh, a small garden shed, and the inside of it was actually covered with hardcore pornography and the like, like from magazines. But what they'd managed to do was kind of cover any bit that would probably be censored and you, you know the kind of thing you wouldn't allow a teenager to walk around by another bit overlapping it almost like a um a collage but i remember finding that incredibly uh mentally engaging exactly james so where are you now you're a completely different place now in your art appreciation of art but what about in your appreciation of that gong that that you because wasn't there wasn't there something on Noel's house party where people would gong over people talking like something hilarious like that you know something pretty 
Uh, he used to gunge people. Oh, it was gunging, wasn't it? Not gonging. I'm sure there was a gong in there somewhere, though. But, yeah, uh, so you could have enjoyed the gong, couldn't you? Yes. You could have enjoyed true. the vibrations. OK, so I feel like we're approaching the end now. I feel like we've got to some interesting ideas and points, and um, I'm sure the listener would have really enjoyed their walk with you earlier today I think you well. gave a wonderful summary maybe about 20 minutes ago, and then we just carried on. So I don't think we need to repeat the summary mm. because it's in there somewhere. <laughs> so um, yeah. we'll... Yeah. We're now halfway through. We've done five chapters of the flow book. Next time, I think, probably we'll see you for our Christmas special. And then, therefore, Yay! we will carry on with chapters six to ten of the flow book in the new year. And I can give you a sneak preview next time when we look at the flow of thought. I have made my notes in pink ink. Very good. You're one step ahead as ever. So I guess for this episode and on this occasion... This decade. This decade. For this decade. Wow. Thank you for listening to us, and we'll see you in the next one. All right, well, take care, and it's goodbye from the Private Practice Podcast Studio in London. I'm Daniel P. Brown. And it's goodbye from the Private Practice Podcast Studio in Spain. I'm James Hall. Flow, flow is, is a verb. Flow, flow is, is a, a doing, doing word. word. And then, I don't know what comes next. my... Yeah, it says fearless summer rain, I think. Should we do just one more? Yeah, so one okay, more. Okay. So one, two, three. Flow, 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 flow is, is a verb. Flow, flow is, is a doing word.